This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And to introduce our first guest, we should probably start with her TED Talk. Because this was at TEDx Sydney in 2017 with 4,000 people in the audience. And bounding on stage like a rock star was Jordan Raskopoulos. Make some noise if you love TEDx! Now, Jordan was clearly in her element. Make some noise if you hate public speaking! Yes! Make some noise if the idea of giving a talk in front of thousands of people is your nightmare! Yes. Yes. It's not for me. Uh, Yeah, hi, I'm Jordan Raskopoulos. I am an Australian comedian. Uh, I'm principally known as the lead singer for the worldwide sensation, uh, the Axis of Awesome musical comedy group. Jordan has toured all over the world with her bandmates. Welcome, the Axis of Awesome. She's been on TV a bunch of times. Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm Lee. And I'm Benny. And we we are the Axis of Awesome. So yeah, Jordan was completely confident when she hit the stage in Sydney. I know, I can drop my voice a little bit, get a little more conversational, talk to someone in the front row. Hey, how you doing? TEDx, am I right? Uh, Rock and roll. (laughs) I can raise my voice to a crescendo and let silence hang for three seconds and then speak quietly, purposefully and softly and I have your full attention. I do not get stage fright. So people find it really odd when I tell them that I have an anxiety disorder. There is a level of anxiety going on with me at all times unless I am performing. <laughs> like, my brain races constantly and, and thinks through ridiculous scenarios, you know, trying to predict how things are going to happen. And I think if I do the wrong thing, it will be a disaster. Jordan says this dilemma Full confidence on stage, but extreme anxiety and depression offstage is something she's lived with, undiagnosed, for a long time. Mental health is health, but even speaking about having anxiety or depression or any form of of mental health issue, people were very reluctant to do that because society kind of saw someone who has mental illness, well, that equals crazy. It's estimated that 1 in 14 people around the world have an anxiety disorder, and more than 300 million suffer from depression. And yet, talking about mental health in many parts of the world is still a little bit taboo. So many people dealing with common disorders feel alone, or disgraced, or crazy. So today on the show, we're going to talk about erasing the stigma how we can think about this massive health crisis in a different way. And we'll hear ideas from TED speakers that might just change the way we talk about it. And for Jordan Raskopoulos, how she was going to push past the stigma and talk about her anxiety publicly was obvious. She just needed an audience. When people describe the sensation of stage fright, they often say things like, I'm nervous. I might be lost for words. I might forget what to say. Uh, people are looking at me. People are judging me. I think it's all too much. Everything is racing in my head, and I feel like I'm going to freeze. And I know those feelings. I just don't get them on the stage. I get them when I'm talking to someone and I don't know what their name is. I get them if I go to a party and I turn up too early or too late. I get them in most conversations, particularly conversations with people I don't know very well. I get terrified when I have a chatty taxi driver. (laughs) I'm terrified of checking my email, and I am absolutely petrified about talking on the telephone. Yeah, yeah. I don't get stage fright, I get life fright. 
I mean, I certainly know what it feels like to be anxious, you know, at a party or or in an awkward social situation. But to have to deal with that kind of anxiety in in a cab or or a grocery store day in and day out, I mean, it sounds just overwhelming, like even debilitating. Oh, absolutely. It's exhausting, and often it affects, you know, executive function as well. Like, yeah. um, not just being at the grocery store, but getting to the grocery store, you know, having to will myself out of my house to go and encounter the great aisles and awkward conversation at the end. Although now that we have the um, automatic checkouts, you don't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> so grocery shopping's a little bit easier. Did you always have... Episodes of anxiety and depression, is it something that you can remember for as long as you have been alive? Or did it, is it something that kind of developed in your teens or 20s? Or Yeah, I mean, I can definitely remember these experiences, but can only label them as anxiety or, or, or depression in hindsight. I wasn't equipped with the language to articulate the things that I was feeling. And the language that people around me used to describe my behavior is what I presumed was what I was experiencing. So when I was reluctant to leave the house or go to school or something like that, I would be labeled lazy. Um, And so I presumed I was a lazy person. If I was reluctant to hug my grandmother, Hmm. then I was uh, labeled cold and unloving. And those behaviors didn't come from a place of a lack of love. They came from a place of anxiety. But when you are anxious and you cannot perform to other people's expectations and they don't help you with that, that feeling of anxiety or acknowledging that it exists, mm. you feel shame <laughs> and you feel shame about yourself. And, you know, shame is a one-way ticket to depression. It has only been in the last couple of years that I have spoken to people who have a similar relationship with anxiety as I do. It's quite common amongst performers, actually, and I have one friend who describes herself as shy loud. Yeah, and I quite like the phrase, shy loud. It's perfect. Um, And it was only in the last year that I actually became acquainted with the ideas of situational anxiety, social anxiety, and high-functioning anxiety. Now, the thing is, when somebody's anxiety is high-functioning, that means that they work in society. In fact, we work really well. Uh, us shy louds, uh, we have such a, a heightened sense of worry and such a fear of failure that we are often very high achieving and perfectionists. The problem is that our level of worry is so high that even simple tasks require a huge amount of mental energy and completing multiple tasks at the same time is very difficult, which is why situations where there's a lot of stimulation, like a party, can overwhelm us and make us shut down. I put out a tweet a while ago when I was feeling quite low of, I know everybody else thinks that they're a worthless piece of but I am a worthless piece of Um <laughs> You can bleep that if you need to bleep that. But that's what you, that's what you feel what you feel so truly um, mm. when, you are, when you are in it. But what's interesting is like you're talking about this now, very clear-eyed, um, you know, almost sort of like standing on a balcony looking at yourself when you are experiencing these feelings and knowing that those things, those experiences, those feelings may not actually be the truth. You totally. can say that now, but but like tomorrow yeah. or next week, you may, that may be your truth. And that's, that, that's almost what drags me back into it. Um, huh. You know, it, it is, it is that, you know, you, when you're feeling healthy, you can, you can you can, you can be rational you know and you can um and what is scariest from being at this point where i'm i'm probably my mental health is in the last 6 months has been the best it's been in years huh. but there's just a daily fear of at some point this this raft that's keeping me above water is is going to sink again and i'm going to go back to that place and i'm so fearful of that because it's just it's so difficult to escape from do you feel like when you're at your healthiest, like now, mm-hmm. do you have a sense of why? I mean, is it is it is it just the way that the stars are aligned, or is there something that you do? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's all of that. You know, I think there's a big part of 
having, you know, healthy routines, making sure I go to therapy, making sure I start things, making sure I leave the house, making sure I exercise, making sure I talk about my feelings. I also have allies. I have friends. I make sure that I don't go to social occasions alone. Uh, and if they see me struggling in a conversation, they will introduce themselves to share the load, uh, often starting by asking the person's name just to make sure that I've got it. They also know to recognise when I need to evacuate and help me get out. Yeah. The other thing that I've noticed is the strength that I have because of my anxiety. I deal with such a heightened level of stress and worry that I am often very, very good in situations when people are typically stressed and worried. Very good on stage, quite good at public speaking. I'm a very good improviser, I am quick-witted, but I'm also really, really good at taking charge in a moment of crisis. When a friend or somebody that trusts you is dealing with anxiety, what do you, how do you help counsel them? Like, is there anything you can say to them or do for them that is helpful? The most helpful thing that helps me and, and what I offer to other people is to kind of pick up the slack that they can't deal with. I cook for people. Mm. I bring them food or, um, you know, go for a walk and I spend time with them and I'm patient with them. And if they don't want any of that, I remind them that I'm there. Mm. But the legwork is we, we have to do ourselves. So I think for me, it's making that journey easier by taking care of the little things that I can for them. I mean, I feel like somebody like you who is, you know, a public figure, um, and there are lots of people who love what you do and, and you, um, I mean, it's, it's important for somebody like you to talk about this, right? Yeah. To talk about things that make you feel vulnerable. I mean, it, it, it's super important. <sighs> Yeah, there's been such a stigma about talking about it for, you know, oh, there still is. I think the world would be a much better place if A, everyone went to therapy and B, everybody talked about their problems because um, together we can feel less alone and together we can help one another overcome the problems we have. And if we buy into the saccharine world that kind of media pretends exists, that, that only separates us, ourselves and individualizes ourselves into our own misery. You know, if you believe that everyone in the public space doesn't deal with the problems that you deal with in your brain, how, how more alone you must feel. That's Jordan Ruskopoulos. She's a comedian, singer, and YouTube content creator. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Erasing the Stigma, talking about mental health openly and without fear. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to First Republic Bank. First Republic Bank makes sure its customers are well taken care of. That's why its business banking customers receive personalized customer service and solutions to fit their needs for years to come. Whether a client needs a revolving line of credit or a loan to finance their growing business, First Republic Bank provides the kind of exceptional service customers deserve. To learn more, visit firstrepublic.com today. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. This week on NPR's Rough Translation, the story of a six-year-old military kid who moves with his family from base to base, never feeling like he belongs, until Tokyo. Yeah, it's like I was Japanese, sort of. Now his American mom has to figure out what she has to do to help her son fit in. That's Rough Translation from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about erasing the stigma. There are really two kinds of families in America, the families who are struggling with a mental illness and families that are not struggling with a mental illness. 
yet. This is Tom Ensel. He's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. Currently, I'm serving as the mental health czar for the new governor of California. And Tom gives advice on statewide policies to help people who struggle with mental illness. And before that, he had a similar job, but for the whole country. He directed the National Institute of Mental Health for 13 years. I can tell you from my years in Washington that at the time when I was effectively the nation's psychiatrist, virtually every senior member of Congress had me on speed dial. For someone in their family, someone in their office, this is something that keeps a lot of people up at night, but nobody wants to talk about during the day. Yeah. You know, as I've gotten older and and I've had the chance to mentor younger people, particularly in their 20s, I've realized that so many of them suffer through anxiety and depression in silence. You know, they don't they don't talk about it. And I remember having that same experience in my 20s, you know, just being so filled with anxiety and depression and, and sadness and, and eventually seeking out help for it, but doing it in silence because I was embarrassed. You know, I, I felt like this wasn't a real illness. Yeah, you know, I... <laughs> I sometimes say this is the biggest epidemic no one is talking about. Susan Sontag once talked about cancer as the visitor who entered without knocking, and and that's very much the way I feel about mental illness. Nobody goes looking for it, but it finds you or finds someone in your family, and we all become involuntary experts. We have to. Yeah. The numbers bear that out. About one in five people are affected, and perhaps one in 20 are disabled by mental illness. What is difficult about it is that even though this is a common experience, it is incredibly hidden still. That's a really dangerous mistake. Tom Ensel actually talked about this on the TED stage back in 2013 when he was still running the National Institute of Mental Health. My job is to make sure that we make progress on diseases of the mind, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anorexia, on all of these disorders. I work for the federal government. Actually, I work for you. You pay my salary. And and maybe at this point, when you know what I do or maybe what I've failed to do, you'll think that I probably ought to be fired because 90% of suicides are related to a mental illness. Now, when we talk about suicide, what you may not realize is just how prevalent it is. There are 38,000 suicides each year in the United States. That means one about every 15 minutes. Third most common cause of death amongst people between the ages of 15 and, and 25. It's kind of an extraordinary story when you realize that this is twice as common as homicide and actually more common as a source of death than traffic fatalities in this country. But it's not just the mortality from these disorders. Virtually 30% of all disability from all medical causes can be attributed to mental disorders, neuropsychiatric syndromes. What drives the disability for these disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar and depression is the fact that these start very early in life. 50% will have onset by age 14, 75% by age 24. These are indeed the chronic disorders of young people. You know, you gave this talk six years ago, and obviously public attitudes about mental health have changed and developed in leaps and bounds, and and our understanding is growing. But even then, um, suicide is, I think, probably a bigger problem today than it was in, in 2013, for example. That's right. The actual numbers are kind of mind-boggling. So it's 47,000 people Mm. who will die this year from suicide, 90% of them with a mental illness. That is more than the number of people who will die from breast cancer or from auto fatalities or from homicide by far. Wow. For them, it's like they live in Somalia. They have the same life expectancy, 55 years. Wow. That's unthinkable. The fact that people with these brain disorders end up in prison 10 times more often than they would end up in a public hospital. We think 25% of the homeless population in the United States is homeless with a serious mental illness that's untreated. So this is a huge public health social crisis. It's enormous. That we're not talking about 
And that is what, you know, in some ways keeps us from making progress, is that we can't address this as an issue that needs to be outed. As we think about this, maybe it's better to actually go a little deeper into one particular disorder, and that would be schizophrenia. That perhaps not at age 22 or 20, but even by age 15 or 16, you can begin to see the trajectory for development is quite different at the level of the brain, not at the level of behavior. Why does this matter? Well, first, because for brain disorders, behavior is the last thing to change. We know that for Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's, for Huntington's, there are changes in the brain a decade or more before you see the first signs of a behavioral change. The good news stories in medicine are early detection, early intervention. This tells us how we need to think about it and where we need to go. Do you imagine a future where we will understand the brain so well that we will understand every neural pathway that mental illness will be fully treatable? Is that even a realistic future scenario? I think it is. I don't think it requires having to map every connection. And while the tools are better and our understanding is growing and, the, and neuroscience is becoming such a powerful agent for getting to know more about what happens with bipolar illness or schizophrenia or depression or PTSD, even without that stuff, we can do so much better than we're doing today in a world where we incarcerate and we keep homeless and we keep people with these very serious disorders from getting optimal care. Hmm. I think one of the big changes in the way we think about serious mental illness is to realize that if we can arrive early and if we can intervene in a way that's comprehensive, which means not just medication, but a whole range of supports, safe housing, longer-term facilities that are not locked, that are compassionate, humanistic places where people can come and go but get a range of care. People do pretty well. But the critical piece is that we get there early and we treat with a comprehensive and continuous approach, which, quite honestly, we have not done in the United States. Hmm. This is not a question of having to come up with you know, the, the map of the brain at a cellular level to understand what is going to help someone with schizophrenia to be able to recover well enough to finish high school. We're not doing it. And the reason we don't do it is the fear. This is why you bring up stigma. Yes. We don't talk about it. We just don't have this kind of broad awareness, A, that this is a common problem, but B, that it is a treatable problem. So what do you think we need to do as a culture to, to actually address this? Is the answer as simple as talking? Because I think it's pretty obvious that when other people know that other people are experiencing a similar thing, it, it kind of makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. By your talking about your own experience, it, it allows other people to talk about theirs, some of which are, by the way, heartbreaking and others are incredibly inspiring. So that's always a huge step, and it's something that people find um, frightening to do. And if you can model that, it gives people the courage to do it, and mm. it also instills a huge amount of hope. You know, what people with these illnesses want isn't really that different from what you or I want. They want to be connected. So I, I think that as we talk about what can we provide to help people really recover, Part of that has to be giving people a reason to live, giving them something that they care about. And so often, that something is another person. Yeah. To help them to understand that this is not who they are, it's a piece of what they have to live with. That's what we're talking about. It's not that complicated. Tom Soul is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He's the co-founder and president of MindStrong Health. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So one of the reasons why it can be so hard to erase the stigma of mental illness is that no matter where you are in the world, there are not enough doctors to treat it. 
And in some places, it's a lot worse than in others. So let's just talk about Zimbabwe for, for a moment. Um, what is the what is the state of, of things um, with respect to to mental health care? I mean, first of all, there are not many psychiatrists in the in the in the whole country, right? No, at the moment we have 15 psychiatrists, so it's essentially a ratio of one psychiatrist to just over a million people. Wow. And that ratio is pretty sort of standard across Africa and a lot of other low and middle income countries. Zimbabwe has one of the highest suicide rates in uh, in this part of the world. This is Dr. Dixon Chibanda, one of Zimbabwe's only psychiatrists. So the treatment gap, as we call it when we use our jargon, is is massive uh, in Zimbabwe and uh, a lot of other African countries. I mean, is is it because there's, a, there's more of a priority on on other kinds of medical care, like physical ailments that that are not mental ailments? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more emphasis on. Uh, on infectious diseases, you know, when you think of things like uh, HIV infection or, or tuberculosis, maternal and child health, because they tend to be a lot more conspicuous than mental, neurological and substance use disorders, which are sometimes seen as a quote-unquote uh, social challenges, you know. And that's, that's the reason why we don't really have many psychiatrists, not only in Zimbabwe, but the world over. The stigma, the lack of awareness about mental health issues, this is a global problem. Now, Dixon had always been aware of this treatment gap, but it didn't really hit home for him until about 15 years ago, when something happened that would change his entire career. Dixon explains more about it from the TED stage. One evening, while I was at home, I get a call from the ER from a city which is some 200 kilometers away. And the ER doctor says, one of your patients, someone you treated four months ago, has just taken an overdose. So as best as we could, over the phone with the ER doctor, we come up with an assessment. You know, we ensure that suicidal observations are in place. We ensure that we start reviewing the antidepressants that this patient has been taking, and we finally conclude that as soon as Erica, that was her name, 26-year-old, as soon as Erica is ready to be released from the ER, she should come directly to me with her mother, and I will evaluate and establish what can be done. And we assume that that will take about a week. The week passes, three weeks pass, no Erica. And one day I get a call from Erica's mother, and she says... Erica committed suicide three days ago. Now, almost like a knee-jerk reaction, I couldn't but help asking, but why didn't you come to Harare, where I live? We had agreed that as soon as you're released from the ER, you will come to me. Her response was brief. We didn't have the $15 bus fare to come to Harare. Now, suicide is not an unusual event in the world of mental health. But there was something about Erica's death that struck me at the core of my very being. That statement from Erica's mother made me realize that it just wasn't going to work, me expecting people to come to me. And I got into this state of soul-searching, trying to really discover my role as a psychiatrist in Africa. And after talking to colleagues, friends, and family, it suddenly dawned on me that actually one of the most reliable resources we have in Africa are grandmothers. Yes, grandmothers in every community. There are hundreds of them. And they don't leave their communities in search of in search of greener pastures. (laughs) See, the only time they leave is when they go to a greener pasture called heaven. So I thought, how about training grandmothers in evidence-based talk therapy, which they can deliver on a bench? So Dixon, I guess 
more than 10 years ago, you, you came up with this program that you call the Friendship Bench. What exactly is it and how does it work? So in very simple terms, the Friendship Bench is really uh, literally a bench which um, is used to create space for healing. So I work with grandmothers, community grandmothers, who are trained in basics of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's just a form of therapy which is often delivered by highly skilled professionals such as clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. So what I did in 2005 was I trained uh, a whole lot of grandmothers uh, to deliver this intervention. And uh, when you look to this part of the world, Grandmothers are considered to be the custodians of local culture and wisdom, and they are rooted in their communities. And um, they have this amazing ability to listen in a very empathic way. They have this amazing ability to be attentive. And I think they are such an amazing resource I'm I'm curious. I mean, the the friendship bench is a, from what I understand, is a public bench. It's it's out in the open. Um, is that? I mean, it's it seems unusual, right? Because most of the time when people go to therapy, they do it in a private place. There's a a white noise machine. There's you know there's a, a privacy screen so you don't see other patients. Um, but this is happening out out in the open, right? Yeah, it's in the open. And uh, when we first started, you know, we, we would put the benches in discrete areas in the community, you know, outside the clinics. But with time, I realized people don't mind where the bench is. And I think it's because the bench is associated with the community and the grandmothers, as I said, are a source of wisdom and they are seen as a as a person that you can go to, not just for your mental health issues, you know, although our focus is mental health, people will come for all sorts of all sorts of problems. And you know, I'll tell you a little story. When we first started, when I you know, typically me being a psychiatrist, when we first started, I thought, okay, we need to call this bench the, the mental health bench. And of course no one came to the mental health bench. You know, but the minute we changed the name to Friendship Bench people found it a lot more appealing. So again, it's all about how you deliver it, you know, in a way that enables people to actually find your program or intervention uh, user-friendly. In just a moment, we'll hear more from Dixon about the grandmothers of the Friendship Bench. On the show today, ideas about erasing the stigma. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Target Redcard. With Target Redcard, you save 5% on every tech upgrade at Target and Target.com, from rose gold phones to Bluetooth speakers, plus free two-day shipping on hundreds of thousands of items. Save 5% and get more connected. Redcard gets you more. Learn more in-store or online. Restrictions apply. See Target.com slash Redcard for details. Thanks also to LinkedIn Job Seeker. Looking for the right job can make you feel alone. But what if instead you felt hopeful? There are 20 million jobs on LinkedIn and the people who can help you find them. People who will give you advice, help you learn new skills, and people who are hiring. On LinkedIn, you're not alone. Find the job meant for you at linkedin.com slash jobs. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, one of the hosts of On Point, the NPR show that takes you behind the headlines. We've done a deep dive series on education, and all episodes are available to binge now. Listen to On Point now on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about erasing the stigma of mental illness. And we're just hearing from Dr. Dixon Chibanda. He's a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe who trains community grandmothers to deliver talk therapy on park benches throughout the country. Dixon described one of these interactions from the TED stage. Farai, a 24-year-old mother of two, walks towards a park bench. 
she looks miserable and dejected. Now, on the park bench sits an 82-year-old woman, better known to the community as Grandmother Jack. Farai hands Grandmother Jack an envelope from the clinic nurse. Grandmother Jack invites Farai to sit down as she opens the envelope and reads. And after a long pause, Grandmother Jack takes a deep breath, looks at Farai, and says, "I'm here for you. Would you like to share your story with me?" Farai begins, her eyes swelling with tears. She says, "Grandmother Jack." I'm HIV positive. My husband left me a year ago. I am unemployed. I can hardly take care of my children. Tears now flowing down her face, and in response, Grandmother Jack moves closer, puts her hand on Farai, and says, "Farai, it's okay to cry. You've been through a lot. Would you like to share more with me?" And Farai continues. In the last three weeks, I have had recurrent thoughts of killing myself, taking my two children with me. I can't take it anymore. There's an exchange between the two which lasts about 30 minutes, and finally, Grandmother Jack says, "Farai, it seems to me that you have all the symptoms of kufungisisa." The word kufungisisa opens up a floodgate of tears. Kufungisisa is the local equivalent of depression in my country. It literally means thinking too much. We define depression using appropriate local idioms of distress. That people can identify with.、Uh, in other words, the friendship bench is all about immersing ourselves in the experiences of the communities that we are serving and finding out what it is. How do they articulate the whole concept, the whole construct of depression? And once you pick that up, people do realize that this is indeed a medical condition. <laughs> And the interesting thing is, we've introduced friendship bench in New York City, in the Bronx, and and in Harlem. And the issues that come out in New York City are no different from those that are coming out here in、uh, in Zimbabwe. You find it across the globe. Today, there are hundreds of grandmothers who are working in more than seventy communities, and in the last year alone. More than thirty thousand people received treatment on the friendship bench from a grandmother in a community in Zimbabwe, and and our results our results show that six months after receiving treatment from a grandmother, people were still symptom free, no depression. Suicidal ideation completely reduced. In fact, our results. We, this was a clinical trial. In fact, this clinical trial showed that grandmothers were more effective at treating depression than doctors. <laughs> And they.、Um, And so, we are now working towards expanding this program. There are more than 600 million people currently aged above 65 in the world, and by the year 2050, there will be 1.5 billion people aged 65 and above. Imagine if we could create a global network of grandmothers in every major city in the world who are trained. In evidence-based talk therapy, supported through digital platforms, networked, they will reduce the treatment gap for mental, neurological, and substance use disorders. I mean, it, it is, it is such a small nudge. This whole idea, but it has such an enormous impact. It does, indeed. It has an enormous effect. 
Um, and yet, when you come to think of it, it's very simple. There's nothing much to it. <laughs> you know, a one-month training, a wooden park bench, a grandmother, and that's it. You're in business. That's Dixon Shibanda. He's a psychiatrist and the founder of The Friendship Bench. You can find his full talk at TED.com. So earlier, um, we heard from Jordan Raskopoulos, and, you know, she was describing her anxiety disorder. And it's not like she gets anxious over, like, a presentation, right, or, or public speaking, but it's more like she's anxious to just leave the house, to go to the grocery store, you know? Exactly. There's a difference between normal anxiety, which all of us experience, and an anxiety disorder. And many times people think that anxiety is just part of their personality. This is Olivia Reams. She researches anxiety at the University of Cambridge. One in 14 people around the world have an anxiety disorder, so a lot of us are affected. And we need to increase the awareness because oftentimes people wait at least 10 years before seeking help. And that's why Olivia's research focuses on a few really simple things, strategies we can use to help with anxiety. Here's more from Olivia Reams on the TED stage. In our study at the University of Cambridge, we showed that women living in poor areas have a higher risk for anxiety than women living in richer areas. Now, these results didn't surprise us. But when we looked closer, we found that women living in poor areas, if they had a particular set of coping resources, they didn't have anxiety. Other studies showed that people who had faced extreme circumstances, who had faced adversity, been through wars and natural disasters, if they had coping resources, they remained healthy and free of mental disorders, while others facing the same hardships but without coping skills went on a downward spiral and developed mental disorders. And before I dive into what they are, I'd like to point out, and I think this is so interesting, you can develop these coping resources or coping skills on your own through the things that you do. The way you cope has a direct impact on how much anxiety you're experiencing. And if you tweak the way you're coping, then you can lower your anxiety. Yeah, so what are they? What, like, what are coping strategies you suggest? So there are several things. The first thing is the technique that I call do it badly. You know, so many times we get an assignment or we have tasks to complete and we feel overwhelmed. But just jump right in. Do it however, without worrying about how it's going to turn out. It makes it so much easier to begin something and to end something. Another coping mechanism is to forgive yourself. People with anxiety can be very self-critical. Imagine if you had a friend who constantly pinpointed everything that you did wrong and everything that needed fixing in your life. If you have anxiety, chances are that you do this to yourself so many times that you don't even notice it anymore. So next time that you think you messed up or you want to start beating yourself up, forgive yourself. And uh, I have one more coping strategy. It's called the wait to worry strategy. Next time when you get a worry, postpone it. Pick a worry time. So let's say you decide that every day at four o'clock, I'm going to worry every day at four o'clock for 10 minutes. And our thoughts actually decay if we don't feed them with energy. When we get to the worry time later on in the day, we see that whatever we were so worried about initially is not as bothersome anymore. I mean, this is super encouraging, right? Because, I mean, it suggests that people have more agency here, right? Exactly. There are things that you can do on your own. You can take charge of your anxiety and lower it. It's about practicing some of these coping strategies on a daily basis or as much as you can, and this can have a significant impact on your mental health. 
That's Olivia Reams. She's a postdoctoral anxiety researcher at the University of Cambridge. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about erasing the stigma of mental illness. So Sangu Dele is an entrepreneur who grew up in Ghana, and he always thought of mental illness as something other people had to deal with, not something that would actually affect him. You know, when I was growing up, my peers and I, we used to actually perceive a lot of these things. Depression, anxiety, those were quote-unquote, you know, foreign diseases, white diseases. Right? It was the idea is, you know, as an African, you don't, you don't get those diseases. And as a kid, Sangu was taught what a lot of us might have heard growing up, that real men don't show weakness. It traps you, right, because it, it, it gives you this idea of what does it mean to be a man. And, and in this conception, what it means to be a man is, is to be strong, and to be strong means you can't be vulnerable, you can't engage with your emotions, and it's, it's, it's really harmful. I guess that that was how you felt and how many, frankly, many people feel um, around the world about mental health. And then um, you yourself kind of experienced it. You experienced anxiety. What what happened? Yes. So for the first time, I had a, a really a big deal I was working on that just completely collapsed, that basically almost imperiled the existence of my company. Um, and... I had never faced such a challenge before. Um, and so I spiraled down a dark hole. I, I was getting anxiety. I, was getting, I, I faced depression. It wasn't just anxiety. I faced depression and anxiety. But what made it even more difficult was the fact that I didn't and I could not admit to myself that I was going through these challenges because in, I had this construction Okay, this set idea for what it meant to be a man. And so it did not give me the room to be able to be vulnerable. It did not give me the capacity to allow myself to be weak. And so that made the suffering even worse because I suffered in silence. I suffered alone. I couldn't share it with anyone. I didn't even have the tools to know about how to talk about it. It was a very, very painful and dark time. Sangudele picks up the story from the TED stage. On some days, I could do no work. On other days, I just wanted to lay in my bed and cry. My doctor asked if I'd like to speak with a mental health professional about my stress and anxiety. Mental health? I clammed up and violently shook my head in protest. I have a loving, supportive family and incredibly loyal friends. Yet I could not entertain the idea of speaking to anyone about my feeling of pain. People have real problems, Sangu. Get over yourself. Wow. You felt like this is self-indulgent or people have real problems and this is just my petty kind of, you know, selfish, self-absorbed feelings. Like, is that, are those the things that you, you kind of felt? Absolutely. And I'll tell you something that's interesting. Hmm. Even in my talk, in which I come out and I tell people, look, this is my struggle. Go seek help. Yeah. I'll confess and I'll tell you, it still took me another year before I went to see a therapist. Hmm. So deep was the stigma. So what, what happened? Like, what happened when you finally did seek out help? Yes. Yeah, so my first therapy session... My therapist asked me, so how do you feel? And I was like, what do you mean? How do I feel? I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> right? I, I actually, but, but I, I did not know how to answer that question. And it took me a while to be able to answer that question because I didn't even have the tools. I didn't even know what it meant when you said, how do you, how do you feel? I'm just like, yes, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because watching your talk, um, you, you, of course, are talking about how mental health issues are internalized and discussed and described in Africa. Um, but when I heard your talk, I thought, you know, it's really widespread. It, it's, it's a, it still does get stigmatized broadly around the world. Absolutely. And you are right. While I spoke about it from the, pers from the African perspective, which is what I feel comfortable speaking on. Sure. I was pleasantly surprised post my talk to, I heard from people from all over the world I had someone send me an email um, from Sudan, 
where they said, for the first time in my life, my I just watched your talk with my family and we're having a conversation about mental health at the dinner table. I received thousands of such messages. People from different communities that say, look, we, we identify with this, where they, they also struggle with this toxic masculinity. But we just haven't created the right environment that makes it okay to talk about it. Right, because what what men learn about masculinity when they're young ends up affecting everything else, right? Their empathy, their ability to internalize different emotions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the way I always like to think about it is it truly deprives you of your humanity because if you are not allowed to be vulnerable, if you're not allowed to fully process and express your emotions, you're not being allowed to be fully human. And I would always defend it and say, well, you know, I'm an analytical person. I'm data driven. Um, that's how I look at the world. But really, it's because I was just scared of being vulnerable. I was scared of emotions. And so it, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of education to actually understand that, okay, you know what? Emotions are your body telling you something. And the more you can get comfortable with it and understand yourself, and know how you can leverage emotions, you're going to have a, a better life. That's Sangu Dele. He runs a healthcare business based in Ghana called Africa Health Holdings. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Erasing the Stigma, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Katie Monteleone, with help from Daniel Shukin and Emmanuel Johnson. Our intern is Kiera Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.